We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Michael Fahey. Great to be back, Gavin. Tonight we'll be discussing the Taiwan-US Defence Industry Forum, which took place in Taipei this week. Taiwan failing once again to receive an invitation to attend the World Health Assembly. Labor Day rallies in Taipei, slamming the DPP over lack of support for workers' rights as the KMT used the holiday or partial holiday to call for a national holiday for all. Taiwan moving up three spots to 35th in the latest World Press Freedom Index and the National Police Agency launching a traffic enforcement campaign this week to raise motorists' awareness of pedestrians' rights of way. But we'll begin with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs on Monday saying the government is resolved to further deepening and cementing relations with Paraguay. The statement, of course, followed the election of Santiago Pena as the country's new president. Now, according to Taiwan's ambassador to Paraguay, Jose Han, he immediately relayed a congratulatory message from President Tsai Ing-wen and Vice President Lai Ching-de to Pena shortly after he was declared the winner of the country's ballot. Pena is also pledging to continue to strengthen ties with Taiwan and he retweeted President Tsai Ing-wen's congratulatory message expressing his thanks to Taiwan's leader. Now his rival in that election, Efren Allegre, had of course campaigned on a promise to sever ties with Taiwan in favour of China. And prior to the vote, media outlets and pundits here in Taiwan, mainly I guess, had been predicting that he would win the election. Now, Foreign Ministry spokesman Jeff Liao on Tuesday said the government is planning to send representatives to attend Pena's inauguration in August, but he refused to say whether Tsai Ing-wen or Lai Ching-de would be heading the delegation to that event. So, Michael, I guess this election surprised a lot of people. Perhaps. The Colorado Party has been in power for decades and is pretty well... uh, entrenched in Paraguay and a longtime friend of Taiwan going back to the Jiang Jingguo uh, era. So I think that uh, in general, I'm pessimistic, though, about Taiwan's ability to continue maintaining relations with Paraguay. Paraguay is a major exporter of beef and soybeans. And while it does export about $100 million worth of beef to Taiwan every year, it's reasonable to think that it could be exporting far more to China. And I think those economic interests will eventually catch up with the relations. Yeah, that's right. So I think oftentimes then with uh, Central or other Latin American allies of Taiwan, one of the uh, considerations for these countries is the relation with the U.S. uh, because of the fact that the U.S. is right there. And then ties with Taiwan will be perhaps a way to maintain ties with the U.S. And so I think this is something that's considered. Uh, So one does have a pattern in which Taiwan is aligned with uh, governments that have questionable human rights records. But then the uh, opposition will promise to break ties and change to China. And so this has happened more than once. And so this is what's the case with the Colorado Party. Um, The Colorado Party has been in power for all but five of the last 75 years, if I recall correctly. And so it's not surprising there. But uh, the wind does not surprise uh, and that Taiwan will maintain ties with Paraguay in this way. It also does not surprise. But it raises these questions. Uh, There are still warnings that, for example, there will be this uh, issue in the future. And how long long do you think it will last, Brian? I mean, do you think we'll see another four years of happy a happy matrimony between the two countries or do you think there could be a hiccup in the coming year or maybe towards the end um, I think I think it depends on international politics regarding particularly the US and China and Taiwan and uh, election years and so I think um, it is a question but I think I think this will come up again as an issue 
one other issue that's a bit broader is uh, whether it's really in Taiwan's interest to have relations with countries like Paraguay, which don't really share Taiwan's contemporary values. Uh, Paraguay is um, often, it's not as bad as it used to be under dictator Alberto Stroessner, but it is still criticized for uh, excessive repression of uh, free speech and uh, very liberal defamation laws uh, it does not have same-sex marriage, and LGBTQ rights in general are not respected in that country. So what's Taiwan getting out of this? Uh, we're getting Paraguay speaking up for Taiwan at the WTA every once in a while in exchange for tolerating a country whose values don't really align with Taiwan. I would just question if this tarnishes Taiwan's interest or is truly in Taiwan's interest or is just the interest of the professionals in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, who like the pomp and circumstance of official diplomatic relations. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And so it it does raise this question. Uh, It's not just the case of Paraguay, but for example, recently we saw a visit by the Guatemalan president, and that's also another country with questionable human rights records, uh, attacks on human rights defenders and imprisonment of journalists, uh, political violence. And so then uh, Guatemala has quickly played up ties with Taiwan. I mean, President Tsai visited there recently. Uh, It offered even to hold a summit of Taiwan's remaining diplomatic allies. And so I think similarly with Paraguay. And so at some point, I I kind of wonder then, will there actually be further consideration in Taiwan of Taiwan's relation to these allies, what Taiwan is funding or subsidizing the politicians that it's linked to? But then oftentimes in the news spectrum in Taiwan, you don't see a lot of discussion of, of the domestic politics of these other countries. And Brian, do you think there could be a phone call one day from send Sean going how much money are you going to send this thing <laughs> well that's the uh, accusation then but whenever there's a breaking of ties such as occurred with Honduras not too long ago and so I think this this is a it's more politically sensitive at this juncture and particularly as we go into an election year I think the Thai administration would hope to maintain ties but then it's still it's still kind of an issue there regarding the, re- the regimes that the government aligns itself with following up on uh, Brian's connection between Guatemala and Paraguay, I would just point out that both those countries have dismal records on indigenous rights as well, which should be a concern for Taiwan. But do you think the government is going to say anything about this or not? Because suppose the government's always quiet about these things. Of course, Nicaragua, when it had relations with Nicaragua, obviously there was things going on in Nicaragua at the time which weren't really nice. I think that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, along with the Ministry of Defense, are two of the most conservative and independent agencies in Taiwan. I think that if, for example, Chen Zhu and the National Human Rights Commission took a little bit more supervision and oversight over what MOFO was doing, we might say see Taiwan say some things about these. But to date, they've been very jealous of their territory, and it seems accepted that MOFA basically just gets to do what it wants to do. Yeah, in the case of Nicaragua, I mean, that's another country that has a very questionable human rights record. And Nicaragua, uh, when there was the breaking of ties, Taiwan State as well, were not aligned with this country in terms of the values and so forth. But that's a bit late uh, when ties were maintained for so long. And so it's actually deeply ironic there. 
And so, uh, particularly regarding that, I mean, in spite of um, this, these issues with many countries in the region, there's not a kind of concerted push or discussion in Taiwan domestically of what this leads to, uh, what this backs, or does this actually gain things for Taiwan? And so, I think Taiwan also in these countries has failed to really try to build bipartisan support or connections to Taiwan. It's instead reliant on one party, such as in this case, the Colorado Party. And that is a party that is resembling the KMT during the authoritarian era. It's been around for decades and ruled mostly unchallenged, and it's a former military government. And so, there's a fear in uh, in Paraguay after the election, actually, regarding what the consequences will be of more years in power for the Colorado Party. And so, what are views of Taiwan that is aligned with that in Paraguay? That is probably worth considering. And of course, Brian, the government here jumped up and down when Somaliland wanted to open a trade office here, and they made this big play about how wonderful Somaliland is. Probably not for a lot of people. It's a nice place, Brian. Yeah, it's unfortunate. I mean, also just in Africa with Eswatini and other countries such as that. I mean, just the uh, Taiwan has another a number of, of allies that just really have appalling records. One other thing we should be thinking about in light of the breaking of ties with Honduras is that Taiwan should have a plan in place for what it does when relations are broken. There are over 100 degree-seeking Paraguayan students in Taiwan now. And if Paraguay and Taiwan were to break relations, I would assume that the Ministry of Foreign Affairs will cancel scholarships like it did in the past which I think is a very short-sighted move. Fine, don't give any new scholarships, but don't punish these innocent students who've relied on Taiwan to come here and further their education and will go back to Paraguay and be private ambassadors for Taiwan in a country that probably doesn't know very much about Taiwan. Yeah, I've often found that funny, Brian, that the fact that the government comes out and says, well, they can finish this semester but they have to leave after that because we're not going to give them any more money, the students from these countries. It's outrageous. Absolutely. And it's, it is outrageous. Even now, it's after the breaking of ties with Honduras. The students there uh, in Taiwan, Honduran students in Taiwan, are still in limbo. There's still not a clear resolution to the situation. And so I think oftentimes they're just caught between the two governments and, and feel like they don't have a lot of agency. And so there's not a clear plan, and this has happened so many times. And uh, now there's been talk, for example, of with uh, students from Paraguay then ahead of the election, they're considering, will this happen to us, actually? And so there's increased awareness, I think, among international students from countries that have uh, are in this situation in which their countries might break ties with Taiwan. But then Taiwan does not have a plan. Uh, even there are civil society groups of these countries, like Hondurans, celebrating relations between Taiwan and their countries uh, before the breaking of ties. And often the government could draw on this, or, or it's an easy win for Taiwan, taking a high moral ground here. Or again, as, as Michael mentioned, just the um, creating ties with these people as would be ambassadors for Taiwan in that sense. Moving on now, the Taiwan-U.S. Defense Industry Forum took place in Taipei this week. Organised by the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council and the Taiwan External Trade Development Council, the event brought together American and Taiwanese companies to discuss, according to the U.S.-Taiwan Business Council, granular challenges of bilateral cooperation in the defense industry supply chain. They also discussed issues including taking U.S.-Taiwan defense industrial cooperation to the next level, how defense businesses can collaborate now and in the future to help support Taiwan's national security needs in the face of geopolitical risk, the latest developments in Taiwan's defense industry and opportunities for co-production. Now, speaking at the opening ceremony of the One Day Forum, U.S.-Taiwan Business Council President Rupert Hammond Chambers said cooperation between Taiwan and the United States defense industries is based on trust and partnership. And according to Hammond Chambers, the visiting American defense industry delegation 
was aiming to build partnerships with Taiwan counterparts on the basis of that trust. And he went on to say that the US and Taiwan need to act fast in order to take advantage of cooperation opportunities and that such partnerships must be successful for the two countries and also have the potential to benefit the world as a whole. Now, the day after that forum on Thursday, Defence Minister Cho Guo-chung told reporters that his office has now asked both Taiwan's representative office in Washington, D.C. and the American Institute in Taiwan to help speed up the delivery to Taiwan of new F-16V fighter jets from Lockheed Martin. Now, the Defence Minister said his office has recently been notified that delivery will be postponed until the third quarter of 2024 and that U.S. officials have cited the delay to the coronavirus pandemic. So, Brian, so they're all coming here to chat about arms and defending Taiwan, but apparently there's now a delay in the F-16 delivery, which seems to blow in the face one or the other there, yeah? Yeah, that's right. And so I think in terms of domestic politics, this takes place at a time in which the Pan Blue Camp is trying to sow doubt about U.S.-Taiwan relations, particularly claiming that the U.S. is selling uh, useless arms to Taiwan. That's not exactly a new narrative, but then also alleging various uh, sometimes conspiratorial views of the U.S., that the U.S. would abandon Taiwan in the case of invasion, uh, absolutely would do that, that it would even consider bombing TSMC facilities uh, to prevent it from falling to Chinese hands, that it hopes to turn the U.S. into, uh, the US hopes to turn Taiwan into a munitions stockpile. And so that's one of those things that's occurring in domestic discourse. And so I think that will be played up, um, particularly when there are these visits. Even during the Pelosi visit, for example, the Pam Blue Camp framed it as, well, why is Pelosi here? She tried to sell us weapons that are useless and, and so forth. Uh, but in this case, I think that it's part of this push and pull between Taiwan and the U.S. regarding asymmetric defense. And so one also does see that in the background of this uh, kind of visit. And that's also a kind of push and pull between stakeholders of the military and the U.S., which hopes to push Taiwan towards asymmetric defense. And so there are kind of a number of host of issues I think, going up, uh, kind of tied up together here. I just have a couple of observations about this. First, my understanding is that this visit doesn't have very much to do with the uh, jet production delays and issues. It's mainly about the possibility of manufacturing parts for certain types of military equipment, especially drones, I think, here in Taiwan. Secondly, uh, and taking up something that Brian mentioned, there has been an outpouring of vitriol uh, in the blue media and on blue talk show talk shows like Zhao uh, Xiao Kang's Situation Room, uh, claiming that uh, these are. Uh, Merchants of death who are coming to Taiwan as part of their plan to turn Taiwan into a giant munitions stockpile and force China to attack Taiwan. So it's uh, it, the reception of the visit has been highly politicized in Taiwan. Mm, absolutely. And so I even see these claims repeated, for example, by former Minister uh, of Culture Long Yitai in the New York Times of all places, in which, for example, she actually brought up the uh, claims about TSMC and, and so forth, the U.S. would destroy these facilities. And so this is increasingly prevalent, I think, among the Pan Blue Camp. Uh, and just then this kind of fear, uh, or just even this kind of visit, I mean, I think it plays into a lot of these anxieties that Taiwan long has had uh, regarding the possibility of the U.S. not supporting Taiwan. But it's interesting to see it kind of come up in this way. I and mean, ironically, though, uh, 
that the uh, this visit is more about asymmetric warfare and pushing for drones and measures like that. That's to be contrasted with the F-16s, which are more traditional uh, symmetric warfare and are responding to, for example, the kind of gray zone tactics of China, that you deploy these planes whenever you have an air incursion, that kind of thing. And so the calls from the U.S. sometimes are to not really do this as much. It wears on the airplanes, uh, raises the odds of conflict. Um, you know, the planes themselves are degrading. And so it's actually a bit ironic to in actually thinking about that the uh, a discussion of it to discuss more drones takes place at the same time as the announcement of delays on F-16s. It kind of gives more weight to the push towards asymmetric means of warfare. But that's not going to play out in the media, I think, in terms of the pan blue media. It's more just the relation with the U.S. that comes into question. And could some argue, Brian, that maybe, you know, these defense contractors come over here, but maybe possibly Washington is looking to defend Taiwan on the cheap? Um, well, that'll be the allegation, I think, for the Pan Blue camp, to be sure. <laughs> but, Brian, I think that one of the reasons for bringing up the uh, visits of the defense contractors and portraying them in such a negative light is that the KMT is working very hard, and I think so far pretty successfully, to frame the upcoming presidential election in terms of a vote for war Mm. by voting for the DPP and a vote for peace by voting for the KMT. It's a powerful framing and could be very effective. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah, I think so. And it's definitely how this is playing out uh, in terms of the war and peace framing. KMT framing themselves as a party of peace and DPP as provoking uh, warmongering uh, through its stances on cross-strait politics and so forth. Its lack of interest in economic engagement with China, or that is how it's framed by the KMT, rather. And so then uh, this will become an issue, I think. And particularly, I think another question is the choice of diplomatic allies for Taiwan. Does Taiwan align with the U.S. and other Western powers, or let's say Japan, as perhaps advocated by the DPP? Or does it try to, again, return to economic engagement policies with China? as occurred under the last KMT administration. Yeah, we we got about five months of that stuff coming up, haven't we? By mid this month, when the other party names its candidate. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. (laughs) And so for the KMT, in this argument, or this attempt to frame the election in terms of war, this visit by the defense contractors is not particularly significant, Mm -hmm. but it's yet another brick in the wall that they're building to portray this election as a existential choice for Taiwan. And moving away from war now and talking about, well, health, because Health Minister Shui Rui-Yuan on Monday announced that Taiwan, and no surprise to this one, has not received an invitation to attend the annual World Health Assembly, which, of course, will be taking place from May the 21st through the 30th in Geneva. Now, according to Shui, he remains hopeful that friendly countries can still help Taiwan participate in international events to counter what he called unfair treatment. Now, Shui is scheduled to lead a delegation to Geneva on May the 19th to voice the government's desire to join the WHA as an observer, as well as to participate in World Health Organization meetings, mechanisms and activities. Now, reports say the delegation will include, well, many, many and several main players in the island's health system. Those include National Health Insurance Administration Director General Shi Zhongliang and CDC Deputy Director General Philip Law. So, Brian, of course, as one of our regular guests who's not here today, it's the pity party time. Yeah, well, it's a story that comes up every year, and, and it's not a big shift this time around, except that there is travel after 
post-COVID, quote-unquote. And so then you can actually have the Minister of Health going to Geneva. But that resumes the pattern before COVID, in which this would happen every year. And Taiwan would conduct meetings on the sidelines of the WHA uh, and state that it had tried to gain diplomatic space in this way internationally. Uh, There's been no shift in the WHA and the WHO. And I think quickly, despite Taiwan's successes fighting off COVID-19, this was still not successful. And so there's a lot of exposure on Taiwan during that time. There's much more momentum, particularly with the U.S. adding its weight to Taiwan's bid for membership, or at least observer status in international organizations. And it still did not result in changes. And so I think then this year will probably be no different. And Michael, what about all these lawmakers from all over the world? We read about every week the lawmakers in country A are going, we'll help Taiwan join the WHA. They don't have any power to do that. (laughs) It's easy to say. But I think that the visits to the WHA do have some benefits. First, one of the costs to Taiwan of its decades of isolation has been that Taiwanese government officials have little opportunity to interact with their peers in other countries. Of course, doing that in the context of the WHA would be ideal. But by going to Geneva and being on the sidelines, they're going to have opportunities to do that there too. Perhaps even more importantly, it's a reminder to the people of Taiwan that they're excluded from the World Health Assembly, uh, something that I think bothers Taiwan, Taiwanese people in particular uh, simply because of the very high status that the medical profession uh, and the sense in Taiwan that medicine is and health is a human right. And therefore, it's also a very effective reminder to people in Taiwan that Taiwan is being bullied by China, even on issues like health. Yeah, I mean, I think Taiwan's exclusion from the uh, WHO and WHA does have effects. I mean, people pointed to Taiwan's successes uh, with COVID-19 as a sign of, well, Taiwan did not listen to the WHA and WHO that time, and so it was successful. But Taiwan is actually left out of international information sharing or some resources. There are some funding windows that, for example, can come through organizations such as WHO and WHA, and Taiwan is denied access to that. And so that does actually play an impact in global health. Uh, Taiwan has cited its own connections internationally, for example, in regards to air traffic or the amount of travel that passes through Taiwan, with regards to exclusion from, let's say, the International Civil Aviation Organization. But then in terms of global health and, and so forth, I mean, just these ties between Taiwan and the rest of the world economically in terms of travel and so forth, I mean, that also, I mean, pandemics, as we just saw, are international, fundamentally international. So leaving any part out of that kind of fabric is a danger to the world. And so I think that's important. And Michael, do you think, I mean, obviously they're going to go to Geneva. Do you think they'll be, politely put this, harping on about the COVID? Or do you think it's, they think it's time to the government here move on from the COVID and talk about other issues where Taiwan could help the world health-wise? My sense is that they're moving on, and I base that on a Ministry of Foreign Affairs propaganda video, which they just released uh, in tandem with the visit, which mentions that the Taiwan International Healthcare Training Center has trained more than 2,000 healthcare professionals from 77 countries in the past 20 years. And Taiwan's health programs in Africa have contributed to reducing the early neonatal mortality rate uh, by 1%. So I think they're focusing on other things now.
Yeah, that's right. And so this is a narrative that one saw before COVID regarding Taiwan's contributions to global health despite being excluded from the international community. So this is kind of usual narrative of Taiwan being a good citizen despite exclusion from the international community. And so, for example, someone like Philip Lowe in the CECC, who is there in every press conference and is also part of his delegation, is someone that has participated, for example, in this in a very high-profile way, Taiwan's attempt to, for example, provide medical aid to other countries. And so it doesn't surprise then in terms of the composition of the delegation, let's say. And of I course, just, oh, carry on, Michael. I just wish Taiwan wouldn't tie that medical aid so obviously to diplomatic relations, <laughs> yeah, though. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it just doesn't look good. And of course, Brian, we're going to have, when the WHA starts, or the days before it starts, we're going to have, will Taiwan be put on the agenda? Yeah, and that also that comes up year after year as well. And so it does depend. And I think that oftentimes it is the large and powerful countries that are the agenda setters, I mean, such as the US and China. And so it's a question this time around. It's definitely not as politicized as it was in past years, though. For example, when you had the interview with the, I believe, the vice chair of the uh, WHA, and he tried to avoid talking about Taiwan entirely, interview with a RTHK journalist. And so that was an awkward moment in which he tried awkwardly just tried to not talk about Taiwan and pretended his video froze, and that gained a lot of international attention. But we're not in one of these years in which there's such focus. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan this week, and it was Labour Day this past Monday, and thousands of people, who I should point out actually had the day off, but we'll get to that point in a bit, took to the streets of Taipei to accuse the government of failing to enact a minimum wage law, to take action on skyrocketing housing prices, to increase the number of public holidays, to increase the minimum Labour pension account contributions made by employers, and also to tackle Labour shortages. Meanwhile, the KMT used the day to call on the government to make May the 1st, or Labour Day, a national holiday, so Everyone in Taiwan can take the day off. Currently, only labourers or those defined as being covered by the Labour Standards Act are entitled to, well, take the day off. Now, according to the KMT, currently some 10 million people are entitled to take the day off on... Labour Day, but many others aren't and more than 80 countries, the KMT pointed out, now designate Labour Day as well, a big old national holiday when everybody doesn't have to work, Michael. Well, one thing that I would point out first is that uh, there's a little bit of a nomenclature issue here. Uh, The Labor Standards Act, or laborers, really means anyone who's an employee. So it includes white-collar employees in offices as well as people in uh, factories. The overarching issue here, though, uh, there, there is an inconvenience with the current setup of Labor Day, which is that government offices are open, but uh, many employees are off, which which creates lots of inconvenience. But the bigger issue is the number of days off, the number of paid days off that Taiwanese workers have. Uh, Taiwanese worked um, uh, to over 2,000 hours in uh, last year, and that was just an increase over the Thai administration. There's just been a in- decrease of about 1%. In contrast, uh, Korea is now down to 1,905 hours uh, a year, which is a decline over se- of 7.4% over the same period. Japanese only work 
1,600 hours per year. So Taiwan is really an outlier. It's the world's fourth highest country in terms of the number of working hours, and that number has barely decreased under the Tsai administration. One solution to giving people more paid time off would be to increase the number of paid holidays, and that's a real focus of labor movements at the moment. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I was at this uh, demonstration, and that's the demand. Uh, the Thai administration cut public holidays in its first term, and so this is still an issue. And so this was brought up, restoring the public holidays that were cut. And so this uh, was one of the demands of the protests. I mean, it's also then uh, a question whether there will be any action, particularly ahead of an election. And so also a lot of the discussion there was on pressuring successive governments. The, the protests did not take a political side that has been contentious in the labor movement in preceding years, but calling on the government for to do more and then saying the Thai administration had not done anything while promising to aid workers and then diverting uh, various anxieties about, for example, China towards voting or voting for the DPP. It is true, though, that the reason they cut those days off was in order to make sure that everybody had a two-day work weekend. Yeah, um, so it is a kind of a contradiction there, but that uh, labor dispute has not been resolved all these years. Taking, course, taking with the left hand and giving with the right hand. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, Michael, some of those holidays they took because they didn't really agree with. For example? Well, the December the 25th used to be a lovely holiday. Uh, that's true. Uh, that was Constitutional Day. It was, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> one can imagine that uh, perhaps the current government uh, is uh, less, who's one of its uh, goals in its party chapter is, is creating a new constitution, might not be totally satisfied with a holiday satisfying the, uh, celebrating the constitution that they supposedly want to do away with, even if they're not likely to do so. But one solution to this problem, and, and this is a problem for creating more national days in Taiwan, is, is that they're politically controversial. So it might not be a bad idea to make some of them, you know, National Taiwan Bear Day or <laughs> uh, National Pet Day so that everyone can spend some time with their pets. Give them non-controversial names rather than political significance, and we might get more uh, progress with this. But of course, industry is not going to really like National Pet Day, Brian, is it? Uh, well, the pet industry might, and that's also a growing field. I mean, the, the, the fur child industry is, I think, uh, quite enlarging these days. It would be amusing to see industry come out and oppose <laughs> National Pet Day. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, what days could they choose, Brian? Obviously, National Human Rights Day. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's something the DPP will push for um, because of its advocacy for human rights going to the democracy movement or framing of its uh, political actions then during in the framework of human rights. And so it's kind of interesting actually seeing the various parties when they propose different national holidays could reflect their different views of history between the DPP, the KMT, the MPP, and the TPP. And so they all have different lists of holidays that they would like to see celebrated. And so eventually something gets worked out among those, but uh, it's kind of interesting too regarding how that affects political contention or views of history and culture. But the, K the DPP is almost certainly going to try to make National Human Rights Day uh, December 10th, mm, which course. is the anniversary, which I think is actually International Human Rights Day. It is. And it's, it also, is. The yeah. it's also the anniversary of the Kaohsiung incident. Mm. And naturally, the KMT will be opposed to it. I, 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 here's another idea. Why not make the legalization of same-sex marriage day a national holiday? One could argue the government really didn't do that, did it? The lawmakers were sort of forced to do it because the government passed the buck. But we won't go down that road. Well, that's, that's absolutely true. But, but, but since it's passed, uh, I've been very heartened that despite 
significant social opposition at the time. Taiwan has very pragmatically uh, accepted this, moved on, and I don't think there would be a whole lot of opposition to it, and it would generate enormous publicity for Taiwan internationally. And Brian, what about other holidays? Like, there's lots of migrant workers here. Yeah, that's Could right. maybe certain migrant workers from certain countries be allowed a day off to celebrate a national holiday in their country? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a definitely need. Uh, but also, what's uh, paradoxical is a lot of the International Labor Day commemorations in, in recent years, there's not been a lot of migrant worker presence. There was actually in the start of about like six, seven years ago, but it's died off as time has gone by. And so I kind of wonder why. And part of it's the day off, but also the lack of inclusion for migrant workers, I think, among traditional labor organizations in Taiwan. Um, in that sense, I mean, particularly COVID came up as an issue during the protest that uh, the medical workers in Taiwan feel they haven't actually been uh, given the subsidies they were promised for fighting COVID or or just purchasing medical supplies and so forth. But I think, you know, COVID, celebrating the time of successes, but also giving workers a day off. I mean, maybe that's one way to have a compromise there. Just picking up on your idea, Gavin, uh, perhaps there could be a day off for, uh, what's what's the name of the festival after Ramadan, Eid? Mm, uh, yeah. Or simply a National Migrant Worker Appreciation Day. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, those think like, you know, those are those are good ideas, but uh, it's, it's, one or, it's a question if the government would actually get to that discussion. It's a question of whether big business would allow it to get that <laughs> Anyway, moving on now, and Reporters Without Borders this week released its annual World Press Freedom Index, which saw Taiwan moving up three spots to stand at 35th out of 180 countries and territories evaluated. But, as has become the norm, Reporters Without Borders says the ranking does not represent improvement in Taiwan's media environment over the past year, and Taiwan only moved up three places because of the decline in press freedom of other countries. Now, Reporters Without Borders also stress that Taiwan's media environment is marked by political polarisation and dominated by sensationalism and the pursuit of profit. Now, the head of Reporters Without Borders East Asia Bureau, Cedric Alvani, here in Taipei, told reporters that journalists in Taiwan have been pressured by their companies to produce sensationalistic news stories. And Alvani also said that media outlets here in Taiwan tend to slightly distort the information they publish for political reasons. Now, Taiwan's latest ranking placed it fifth in the Asia-Pacific region. And according to the index, Taiwan is among the 44 countries listed as having a satisfactory media environment. Brian, so did better but didn't do better at all because it stayed the same. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that uh, Asia, to be honest, it's a very low bar because Taiwan is obviously not under a military dictatorship at present. And so under with Thailand or Myanmar or these other places, I'm reporting on certain stories that will get you in trouble with the government. And the government is usually a military government. And so then there's not, I mean, Taiwan does not have that at present. And so things are, are not that bad. Uh, but I think there are still the same issues regarding the media in terms of structural issues, uh, polarization, sensationalism, commercialism, uh, that each newspaper has a political slant and they want to favor their own camp and so forth. Uh, that's an issue. I mean, it faces every country at present, uh, like an age in which we're dealing with clickbait and the internet and social media and sort of a return to yellow journalism, I think, among many outlets. But uh, it's not exclusive to Taiwan, but Taiwan, those issues are quite severe. One thing that I think that Taiwan could do to improve its media environment uh, would be to increase the carve-out or protections for journalists against defamation suits, which can be both criminal and civil. It's particularly an issue for investigative journalists who go after major Taiwanese tycoons who can uh, lawyer up and cause a lot of trouble even if they don't necessarily win the case in the end. I think that's a very practical step. The other issues, 
are difficult. Media is a business. They need to make money. Traditional media is dying. Uh, there, there are there are structural problems. Uh, is it reasonable to to expect that the state is going to be able to come in and ensure that we have fair and balanced news uh, without getting involved in uh, uh, framing or slanting that news one way or another? I think Taiwan faces the sim- similar problems that uh, media does in other liberal democracies. And in related to press freedom news this week, KMT lawmakers stormed, although that word may be a bit strong, they ambled into the offices of the National Communications Commission on Wednesday as it was reviewing Mirror Media's or Mirror News's application for changes in management, corporate guidelines and licences, as well as its application to be aired on cable channel 86. The KMT has long been questioning the Commission's granting of a broadcast licence to Mirror News and is calling on the NCC to suspend its review of the process because, of course, Brian, they've claimed it was unfair. Yeah, so I mean, there have been allegations regarding uh, improper process for Mirror News for a while, and that I think reflects how politicized and how much stakeholders there are regarding television in Taiwan, that it's not the first time this has happened uh, regarding, for example, television networks, uh, people secure entering the, the television indus- uh, industry from online media, for example. And so then this approval process uh, in the National Communications Commission, it becomes really politicized territory between both camps. Uh, but I think also just in terms of the, the ties of people on reviews uh, for networks and so forth, I mean, that's also then scrutinized. On the one hand, the KMT's objections to mirror media have a great deal to do with their continued unhappiness about the fact that China Television got its license revoked for for what the government said were multiple uh, violations of regulations and what the KMT and Blue Camp say was a naked uh, political um, Suppression. Uh, it's a prime example of what they call green terror. It's brought up all the time. So, of course, they're opposed to uh, to to mirror media, which is believed to be relatively pro green. On the other hand, though, I often wonder what's the big deal. Who's still watching television news at this point? Does it really have that much influence? I think it in the in the eyes of the older uh, legislators and members of the KMT, I guess it's still a big deal. But but uh, the days when TV news really made a big deal were way back in the '90s, as far as I can tell. So, Brian, do you think it matters who owns the media outlet if it's on cable television news now? It's actually quite ironic because I actually think that CTI TV being taken off air and then shifting towards online streaming forced them to really innovate. And so they've actually developed new ways of new revenue streams or new ways of raising funds or, you know, just even how they conduct shows. And it's been pretty effective, actually. Uh, paradoxically, with Mirror News, it's actually precisely the opposite. It's an online outlet that wants to go into more traditional television now, which is also a kind of interesting case study because there's not been as much cases of that. So it's kind of the other way around, pushing a traditional media outlet to innovate uh, by now it's only online and vice versa. Now an online outlet wants to get into TV. And what what can they do? I mean, how have they changed? Um, uh, they have become, for example, they on shows regularly, they will request funding, uh, thank people for support. Uh, there's much more interactivity, actually, because it's a streaming program now. So people are paying attention to what the commentators are saying, uh, comments are saying in real time, actually. And you, you do not have that with television. That actually is quite innovative. And streamers, uh, YouTubers, they're much more influential now. And a lot of times, this is all occurring live. Uh, for example, you're just sitting in front of your computer, but you can be quite influential, like uh, Guan Zhang, the uh, gym owner, Ho Chen, is one example. Just There is an interactive aspect to it, and yet he is tremendously influential influential in media, politics, uh, culture, and so forth. I, I was very struck by uh, how CTI 
will be at uh, you know, just with somebody with a phone or maybe a computer will be near uh, polling places talking to people and just showing you what the turnout looks like that day. And it is quite innovative, I think. And before we go this week, the National Police Agency. Well, it launched an island-wide traffic enforcement campaign to raise motorists' awareness of pedestrians' rights of way. Now, the campaign is part of efforts by the government to clamp down on motorists who fail to yield to pedestrians at crosswalks, or where I come from, zebra crossings. Now, according to a statement by the NPA, the campaign will demonstrate its determination to reduce the number of traffic accidents and maintain road safety. Now, the Ministry of Transport's newly amended traffic regulations and increased penalties on motorists who do not give way to pedestrians on crosswalks, of course, came into effect on March the 31st. And under those amendments, drivers of regular vehicles and commercial vehicles who fail to yield to pedestrians on crosswalks or when making turns will receive a fixed fine of 3,600 NT, while motorcyclists who violate the rule face a fine of 1,200 NT. Now, according to the NPA, data shows that police island-wide issued 30,711 fines to motorists for failing to yield or stop for pedestrians using crosswalks in the first three months of this year. And that's apparently an increase of 138% from the same period of last year. So, Michael, I mean, obviously you've been walking around Taipei this week. Have you seen many police officers at zebra crossings, crosswalks or zebra crossings, however you say it, making sure that the pedestrians are safe? I don't think I have. The ones I've seen have all been in pictures (laughs) in the media. Uh, But that said, I'm a bit of a contrarian on this. Uh, At least here in Taipei, I believe that uh, in my experience, my personal experience is that most motorists yield to pedestrians on the crosswalk most of the time. And that is a vast improvement over what the situation was like 30 odd years ago when I first came to Taiwan, where no one did. Uh, At the same time, as a long term resident, I'm very cynical about these periodical campaigns where people get fined for a few weeks or a few months and then everything goes back to normal. One thing I've never understood, and you see it in these pictures, is that the the police officers are set up at crosswalks with cameras. Is it the case that they need photographic evidence (laughs) to cite and find someone? And is that the reason they don't do it normally? Because I see people violating various traffic rules, including not yielding all the time, right in front of police officers. And if it's not during one of these campaigns, the police officer simply ignores it. Now, it may be that he's not a traffic cop, so his job is not to issue these tickets, or there's uh, the the administrative details are so uh, onerous that he doesn't want to do it. But I confess that it is an eternal mystery for me. Yeah, there's so much more discussion now, particularly with the new framing of Taiwan's traffic issues as pedestrian hell. And so I see this everywhere now. I even saw a sign in front of a scooter shop where it said, welcome to Taipei, the pedestrian hell. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> but uh, you see this everywhere now. And, and it is a question. I mean, police often will do things briefly and then just go back to the status quo. And that occurs in Taiwan or elsewhere. But I think particularly Taiwan has an eye on, on international tourism. Uh, there was an incident involving, I believe, a South Korean streamer that was rescued from the pedestrian hell by a car that stopped and allowed her to cross the the road or something of that sort. And so I think there's a, a, an aim at attracting tourism at this juncture, because Taiwan has now become conscious that this affects international perceptions. So that's why the police are doing this now. But will this be permanent or actually change things, or things will go back to normal after a while? I think that's probably the case. I'd just like to add a couple of other things. Uh, one is that despite 
the overwhelming focus on pedestrian safety, I think something like 80% of the traffic deaths in Taiwan are actually involving uh, accidents with scooters. Now, the number of pedestrian deaths in Taipei is slightly higher, possibly because of the larger number of older residents and uh, uh, some other factors. But through most of the country, it's scooters that are really the enormously dangerous uh, agent on the roads. The other thing is I was just down in Pingdong last weekend, and I noticed at about 10 o'clock in the morning in front of the train station, they were setting up a rally for people to come and publicly vow that they would yield for uh, for for pedestrians, uh, they had some very exciting electronic music. About twenty police officers and about two members of the public. Yeah, the event may not have started yet. I, I did notice in the news that they've been doing these events all over Taiwan. For example, they had one in Miaoli where bus drivers from all the major bus driver companies came to make this public vow as well. So don't fear. The government has a multi-pronged approach to this uh, problem. <laughs> and that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Brian Hugh. Good night. And by Michael Fahey. Good night. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.